I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Shaniqua Johnson-Pierce. Shaniqua, thank you for joining us. You are so welcome. Thank you, Dr. Corrado, for having me. Sure. So let's start off by you telling us about who you are. Oh, that's such a loaded question. I feel like I'm a jack of many trades and just so many different things. But I will tell you where I'm originally from, which is Harlem, New York. Um, I attended Temple University uh, for undergrad and grad school. So I feel like I've got some Philly uh, swag underneath my belt. And now I currently reside in Delaware um, as a licensed clinical social worker uh, working Mm -hmm. for an organization called Pathways of Delaware. Um, So that's kind of what I do professionally. But um, outside of that profession, I am a wife. I, I am a mom. I have two beautiful boys who drive me absolutely crazy during a <laughs> pandemic, but I enjoy having this you know, optimal time to actually watch them grow. Um, and I'm also a musician. So I don't know if I've ever mm. shared that with you. I play no. the cello. Um, how dare I not share that with an artist, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I play cello. And so I haven't played a lot lately, but I played ever since second grade. And mm. so originally growing up, I always wanted to be a music teacher. And I realized I wasn't as crazy about it as I was about studying people um, and just learning just how they've come to exist. And so I've kind of used that music in my profession in different ways. So I feel Mm. like, you know, I'm just so many different things and just still figuring out what I want to be. So you already shared with us a little bit about what you do. Do you want to add anything that you didn't capture? Yeah, absolutely. So even with um, my profession as a licensed clinical social worker, I do a lot of different things. So in addition to being a clinical state director for the alternative schools here in Delaware, where I oversee the mental health sector for our students, I also um, do a little private practice work with an organization called Delaware Psychological Services. Mm -hmm. So I carry a very small caseload, but it helps me kind of stay abrupt on the best practices and, you know, really enjoying being with people Mm -hmm. and adults because I primarily work with children, but in private practice, I like to see adults. I think it's a it's a different pace. Um, mm-hmm. It gives you a different kind of relaxation than working with kids sometimes. And so when I'm not doing that, I also teach part-time at Weiner University okay. in the social work department. And I've been teaching um, trauma-informed um, c- certification class, but also the um, social work with families uh class as well. So they're learning, students are learning how to utilize family therapy um, in their work uh, upon graduation. So I have just been kind of like an educator, kind of an advocate, but also a clinician. So I haven't really buckled down in one area of the social work field. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like you, you have your hand in all different um, areas of social work and in advocacy for, um, for people who've experienced trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. And then most recently, Dr. Crowder, I meant to share this with you. I received a very small grant um, from Trauma-Informed Delaware Mm -hmm. here um, to provide group therapy to um, African-American advocates who are 
feel like they've picked up some vicarious trauma Mm -hmm. and, you know, just being a person of color, but also advocating for people of color. So that will start. And I I believe the next two weeks that's going to roll out. So I'm interested to see how that pans out. That'll be um, a seven week uh, group therapy session for advocates. So if you have anyone that's interested in, although it's in Delaware, I'm kind of open to, you know, having people from Pennsylvania join if they feel like this is a, a platform that they need to persevere in their advocacy work. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about Trauma-Informed Delaware? Yeah. So Trauma-Informed Delaware is a large organization. And here in Delaware, um, they have, uh, Governor Carney has declared a trauma in Delaware as a trauma-informed state. Mm. And so what that means is that they're really dedicated here in Delaware to revamping the schools, organizations, to really be mindful of the way that we're administering, administering uh, clinical services, any type of service, really, and also being mindful that the employees that work there have a story that may include trauma, and we want to avoid re-traumatization uh, by, any, by any cost. So Trauma-Informed Delaware is an organization that really sets out to do different things. So this particular um, grant was created to focus on the trauma of you know, uh, people of color have experienced and kind of continue to experience. So they kind of set out different goals throughout the year to combat mm. a lot of those traumas here in Delaware. And how long has this initiative been going on in the state? I want to say I just kind of jumped on the bandwagon about three years ago, okay. um, but I want to say it's probably been going on for at least five to six years. Okay. That's amazing. I'm um, just thinking about how can we envision trauma-informed care and practice across an entire state? Yeah. So it's a lot of work. So, but the great thing is they they are allocating funding for different things to at least get the ball rolling. Because, you know, when you're talking about trauma, something so big that doesn't necessarily have, you know, a magic recipe for, for healing, mm-hmm. you have to get really creative in what, what it is that you're doing. You right. Know? Right. Absolutely. We know that every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you've faced? Yeah. Oh, man, there's so many. I don't know how I'm still talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I guess my adversities really started in my childhood. So I would say when when I was growing up, I was raised primarily by my maternal grandmother. So my mother, she struggled with the substance abuse disorder. Mm-hmm. And then my father was just really inconsistent. So my grandmother was my primary caregiver and later adopted me and my siblings at the age of 10. So I think for us, um, being able to understand what our new normal is compared to maybe other students or other people in the neighborhood mm-hmm. um, who have parents. So for me, it never really impacted me as a child until I got older. And then I realized that the kids I worked with, a lot of them were also raised by their grandmothers. And I'm just like, oh, like it, it really is more popular than I think we, we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, adversity started there. Um, And then I think adversity kind of came back around. So when I was 18, my same grandmother who raised me passed away to cervical cancer. And so I was just a month before my high school graduation. I was just like so devastated because I wanted her to be there. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, I was like, man, I got two choices. I can just lay down, kind of drown in this misery and take my behind to college and have the time of my life. And so that's what I did. So I went to college 
Um, and even though it wasn't too far, I was able to come back and visit family and friends. And so, um, so for me, those were two moments of adversity that were really, really huge, but mm. really, I mean, there's so much beauty that came out of them nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just imagining what that must've been like for you, um, to have that consistent support and love and care, and then also having to adjust, um, from the loss that you experienced. Thank you. So can you share a few important positive moments or turning points in your story? Yeah. So, oh, so I'm so glad you asked that, right? Because it's I think we we easily can tell you about all the bad things that happened to right. us, right? Um, but no, but positive. I talked about my mother having a substance abuse issue. And when I was 10 years old, my mother um, got clean and stayed clean. Mm. And she is still clean till this day. And we are... Uh, two peas in a pod. We get along very well. We have mm. a very healthy relationship. That's amazing. And yeah. And, and, and what's so interesting is I remember my grandmother saying, you know, everyone deserves a second chance. And, you know, when you're young and your emotions are all over the place, you don't really understand how important that is. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just like, oh, yeah, like, I don't think I was ever mad. I was always concerned about what does that mean for her? You know, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, so that was a big turning point. Just seeing my mom get clean, kind of, you know, into the world as a, a new being and, mm-hmm. you know, live on her own, establish relationships back with the family. Um, so so that was great. And then now also I'm also close with my father, um, mm-hmm. who was a little inconsistent in my childhood as well. So I think those were important turning points for me. Wow. Um, so thinking about thinking about the impact of trauma, um, especially early trauma, can really like shape the way that we look at our relationships, um, the way that we connect with other people. Um, sometimes it can it can leave us feeling kind of hopeless. Um, but it sounds like it sounds like your narrative with your caregivers or with with your uh, parents really like it changed. And I'm wondering, did you have to kind of leave space for hope? for yourself in those relationships or uh, did it kind of just happen where there was a transformation in those relationships later on in life? Yeah. So it's interesting. So I've had both experiences, right? So the first one with my mother, it was organic where like space was always there. It was just waiting for her to get clean enough to enjoy the space. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of always there with my dad because he didn't have a substance abuse issue. I think my my concern and my, I guess, my anger towards him was a lot different. You know, mm-hmm. like I had empathy for my mom, where I think for my dad, I had anger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we know how that kind of manifests in our lives. And so for me, I had to create space with my father to say, okay, if you're, if we're going to be in this relationship, this friendship, uh, you know, with each other, then I need you to do this. I need you to do that. So what we've decided on as a team of getting to know each other a little better these days is every Sunday, we will call each other FaceTime or whatever the thing may be. And we've been pretty consistent with that for the last couple of years, which I'm proud of because he will hold me accountable and I will do the same. Yeah. So I think I think for me, I think for me, it's just like okay, where where do we go? What do we know is realistically possible for us, and how do we mend this relationship without making it feel, you know, not organic, you mm. know? So so yeah, it's it's been a process. <laughs> it's mm. been a process, but I think I've, I've definitely enjoy, enjoyed the journey. Mm. And then 
So thinking about what you just mentioned, that it's a process, I think it's important for us to also point out um, the fact that like trauma healing or repairing relationships doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes it can look different depending on um, the person that we're in relationship with or the feelings that we have about what it is that we experience. Um, but kind of think, thinking about that um, relationships and relational repair as being a process, that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we're still working on it. And it's funny because when you talk about the healing, it's just like, if you say this, it sends me back to when I was eight years old and you said you were coming to get us and you never came. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so crazy because you can see that transpire with your clients and the people that you work with. But when you feel it, you're like, oh, this is what they're talking about. Like, I feel triggered. You're getting ready to take me to a whole different But it's, I think being a therapist and being a social worker has taught me so much about myself where I think in other professions, you don't really get to know who you are and what those triggers can be in relationships, Mm -hmm. you know? And you learn more about yourself, whether you wanted to or not. And if you decide you don't want to learn about yourself, (laughs) your clients are going to make you learn about yourself. Absolutely. (laughs) You're like, oh, I can relate. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's also like this kind of like mutual growth process. So we're supporting Mm -hmm. them and growing, but we have no choice but to be changed and and transformed and to grow as well. Absolutely. So what do you see for yourself in the future? Yeah, so I'm super excited. I've I've written all types of goals, right? And I think that's the beauty of being a therapist is that, you know, you know how important goal setting is. And so you Mm -hmm. make sure you try to do that for yourself. So I've got a couple things on the horizon. So for me, the first thing is finishing school. I'm in my final year of my uh, doctoral program at Wilmington University. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. So I'm super excited because I'm going to study um, the stories intervention with my alternative school students. I'm mm-hmm. willing that everything gets approved and, you know, the stars align mm-hmm. <laughs> with everything that I'm hoping. So that's my goal is just to see how effective the stories intervention is with students and alternative school placements. Um, so that's one thing. Well, it's a big thing, right? As you can probably empathize with, it's a big thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's a lot of work right now. And so the other thing that I'm hoping to do is um, expand my business. I created a very small consulting business called Healing Through the Arts. I had to do it for a consulting course and ended up actually following through with everything and creating a very small business. And so my goal is to do different kinds of consulting work, uh, whether it's professional development training, um, doing some clinical work in group sessions. So my first um, client has actually been the detention center here in Delaware, where I've done some professional development training around ethics and diversity before COVID hit, but then also doing some group therapy work on trauma healing. Mm. Um, So I'm excited to kind of venture off and have a little piece of me Uh, be independent. I Mm -hmm. think that's really empowering, especially a person of color who doesn't really, who doesn't, hasn't really had the opportunity to see the entrepreneurial side of things. Um, So I think that's important for me to have a brand that lives with me and can carry on. So those are things that I'm hoping to, to, to work on and just continuing to be a better mom. I know that's always um, a goal of mine is to just be more present with my children mm-hmm. um, as they get older. I think they need you even more, you know, mm-hmm. you have a big vision and I'm excited to see how all these different things are going to play out and, and um, come together. So I'll be, I'll be waiting and watching. 
Thank you. I'm excited. <laughs> excited and nervous. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners? Hmm. Such a powerful, powerful question. And I know this sounds really cliche, but I have to say the greatest resource is people, right? Whatever that looks like, um, whether it's in a church, whether it's your family, whether it's friends, whether it's your therapist, is that, you know, we all need each other. And I think any great thing that I've ever accomplished in my life has never been in isolation, right? Like it's always been on a team, whether it's people behind the scenes kind of cheering me on or whether it's people you know, just saying, hey, you need a break. Let's go to lunch. You know, I think surrounding yourself around people who have your best concern and who empower you to achieve the goals that you set for yourself. I Mm -hmm. think, you know, we're social beings by nature. Like we have to, we thrive off of that social networking. And so I think for me, the greatest resource is figuring out different ways where you can be a part of different groups or different, um, you know, agencies and do different types of work where people have the same vision as you and that can also teach you so much. So I think, Mm. you know, being around people and keeping this dreaming uh, aspect of who you are as a child at the forefront of your adult life is always great because, you know, when you stop dreaming, you stop setting goals. Sometimes you don't feel like you're moving, you know? Right. And sometimes we kind of like relegate dreams to childhood when in reality, mm-hmm. like we should be dreaming all throughout our lives. Yeah, that's a really great point. Right. Absolutely. And then I think also in, in addition to that is asking questions. I think I've never asked so many questions as I've done in my doctoral program. And my professor would say, you ask as many questions as you want. But, you know, as adults, we always feel like we have to have it figured out. You know, and I think that we're not always comfortable with making mistakes, um, especially not on that level, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know. So I think, you know, a part of, you know, the things that are acceptable as a child should be transcended into your adult life where you don't feel the pressure to be perfect, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? No, I'm just so grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for choosing me. And I think, you know, ironically, I always think that the things happen at the best time. And so mm-hmm. I had a project for school, Dr. Crowder, where I had to like reflect on this place I am in my life. And I'm like, well, this is great because Dr. Corrado is going to prepare me for everything I want to say and I'll just type it on out. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. <laughs> For, for choosing me, for thinking of me today. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Yeah, my goal was to highlight different people that I already knew, that I already um, had established relationships with, and to just ask them these same set of questions so that we can all kind of learn more about each other. And I've just been inspired listening to everybody's responses, learning about the adversity, but also learning about the strength and how all of these these different people that are doing incredible, powerful work in the field are also able to bounce back even in the midst of the adversities that they face. And then also hearing like hearing your future vision, hearing other people's future vision is inspiring. And, and my goal is that other people will also be inspired to um, identify what their future vision is. What do they see for themselves? And also to to dream like you're mentioning today. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. 
For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corredo, and my work with the Stories Trauma Narrative Intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.